0: I'm Carl Ellis. I'm an associate professor at uh, Redeemer Seminary in Dallas, Texas. I'm here to share with you some aspects of Islam in America. Before we get to, to, this, the, to the main subject, let me share with you a couple of concerns I have, which I think are very, very important. And these are foundational truths that we need to know before we deal with Muslims. There are two axioms that I want you to keep in mind. In everything I say, I want you to keep these axioms in the background. They're kind of like the two great commandments. The first axiom is this. Islam is a system, and Muslims are people. Even if you despise the system, you must love the people. That's very important. The second axiom is this. There are three things that a Muslim has no defense against. Two of these things you're already familiar with. The third is the, one, is the one we need to study about. The first thing that a Muslim has no defense against are the prayers of the saints. If you know any Muslims, and I'm sure you have encountered them in many places, you need to pray for them. I've seen many Muslims come to Christ, and they've all come because somebody prayed for them. The prayers of the saints, the love of the saints, the same thing. It's uh, a lot of Muslims come to Christ because they experience the love of Christ, and they have never experienced that before. But we're familiar with those things. All we have to do is act on, on them and, and, and perfect the way we express them. The third thing is, is important, though. A Muslim has no defense against the wise application of the word of God to, their, to his or her core concerns. Now, when I say core concerns, I'm talking about life-controlling and life-defining issues and or values. If we apply the Word of God to their core concerns, the Word of God has a funny characteristic about it. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it, it has a way of never returning void. And you begin to apply the Word of God, and they may think the Bible is full of mythology and inaccuracy and all the rest of that, But when you apply the word of God to one of their core concerns, it ministers to them and they begin to say, well, whatever I think about the Bible is right at that point. And of course, you know what happens once you begin to get into the word of God, you enter into a kind of a slippery slope and eventually it's just a matter of time. So the thing is that's important about this is that the word of God is capable of doing the heavy lifting. It's the Holy Spirit that, that works in the heart of, of people, that brings them to faith and repentance and all the rest of that. So those are the two axioms that we need to know. Uh, axiom one, axiom two. Remember, those are like the two great commandments. And on these hang all the things that I'm going to be teaching you for the next few few hours. Okay, now let's first start, start talking about Islam, the growing presence of Islam in the United States. Uh, currently, there are between 2 and 5 million Muslims in the U.S. It's probably closer to 2. Uh, but Islam is America's, one of America's fastest-growing religions. Now, if you look at the demographics of the Muslim community in Canada, a very similar uh, society to the United States, you will find that about a third, about 33% of Canadians, Canadian Muslims are Canadian-born, and about 67% are overseas-born. And I would say the bulk of those are probably sons and daughters of those who were overseas born, now you would expect America to have the same demographic, but it's slightly different. In the United States, about 44% are American-born, and about 56% are overseas-born. Now, why is this? I think it has something to do with the fact that a number of, uh, a high number of, uh, a higher number of Americans convert to Islam and uh, especially among African-Americans. So that kind of skews the the demographics a little bit. Now, if we look at the ethnic diversity of American Muslims, they break down about like this. About 42% are African-American, 24.4% are South Asian, 12.4% are Arabs. It would seem that uh, Arabs would comprise a larger percentage, right? But the fact is that about 9 out of 10 Arabs in this country claim to be Christians, 6.2% 6.2% of American Muslims are African, 38 are Iranians, and let me make a comment about Iranians. The Iranians, along with the African Americans, are one of the most responsive Islamic groups to the gospel, but there are completely different reasons. Iranians are responsive to the gospel. Uh, I think it, it, dates, it goes back to some of the events that happened in 1979. With the Iranian um, uh, revolution. As you know, the Iranians speak Farsi, not Arabic. And so, Arabic is not their heart language. And so, there's a kind of a, uh, they're slightly removed from uh, the Quran, as it were, because you know the exclusive language of the Quran is Arabic. But a lot of Iranians kind of had an intuitive understanding or an intuitive knowledge of who God was. And th- they just assumed that he was Allah. When the revolution happened and Islamic law was strictly applied, a lot of Iranians said, wait a minute, that's not the way God is. He can't be that way. And when they came to hear the voice of the shepherd, they would say, many of them say, well, that's 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 the way God really is. And so the Iranian revolution, in a way, has created an incredible evangelistic opportunity for us. Because a lot of Iranians are looking and contemplating and thinking in some other directions. Now, African Americans are, African American Muslims uh, are also very responsive to the gospel, believe it or not. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that at least those who convert to Islam, they're basically disgruntled church members. (laughs) And they came to Islam because they were looking to answer certain questions and address certain issues. They didn't hear it in the church, and so they went looking elsewhere to Islam. Now, when I've confronted African-American Muslims and asked them, why did you leave Christianity? They always give me the same answer. Christianity didn't answer my questions. It didn't address my issues. And when I go to ask them what questions, what issues, they list them for me, and they are thoroughly addressed in the scriptures. And I begin to uh, to, to, to show them how the scripture addresses them and they begin to melt down. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more of this uh, later, but the nature of African American theology, the, the dominant strand of African American theology in this country, was more on the intuitive, intuitive side of intelligence than the cognitive side. And so a lot of these guys who become Muslim uh, are intuitively Christian, in a sense. And yet they are looking for answers on the cognitive side, and that's why they went to Islam. So when I come along and I begin to present Christianity to them, the gospel to them, in a cognitive way, it kind of causes the intuitive core to vibrate and resonate and say, hey, that's the truth. And, they, and many of them are so shocked to find that the Bible does answer their questions, does address their issues. And the, 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 I've heard countless times uh, uh, African-American Muslims saying, I became a Muslim because I was looking for what you just told me, and the other reason I think they they tend to be more responsive to the Gospels—they got moms and grandmas and pops praying for them, and uh, you know there's there's no resistance. There's no resistance to the prayers of the saints. So those are two those are two aspects among the most responsive. uh, Islamic groups uh, to the gospel, the rest of the demographics will go this way there are two point four percent two point four percent are Turks, two uh, percent are southeast Asians one point six percent are whites, and about five point six percent are other other categories now, if we focus on african Americans um, you will see well let let 's talk well, let 's talk about uh, the demographics of American-born converts to Islam, converts to Islam, those who do not have a Muslim background and they're converts to Islam. About 56% are African Americans, 36% are white, and 8% are other. And if you were to see that as in, in a pie chart, you would think that the African American slice is growing the fastest. Actually, it isn't. The white slice is growing fastest. Now, if we look at um, African-American Muslims per se, there are about a million African-American Muslims, give or take, all right? And you basically have, uh, most of us have heard about the Nation of Islam under uh, Louis Farrakhan. Uh, He makes a lot of noise, but if you look at the numbers he has that follow him, it's only about 10,000, maybe 15,000, I mean, but that would be stretching it. But if you look at all other African American Muslims, you know there's. Uh, you, you take ten thousand away from from about a million, you 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 you're looking at one percent here. Um, and so, a very small percentage of African American Muslims are followers of Louis Farrakhan. But in the African American community, there are two basic types of Muslims. There are what I would call mainline Muslims. These would be Sunnis. Sufis, Shiites, Ahmadiyyas, and of course the, the overwhelming bulk of those would be Sunnis. Mainline Muslims versus the black nationalist-oriented type Muslims. Now the black nationalist-type oriented uh, Muslims are, would, would, would be in groups like the Nation of Islam. By the way, there are over six uh, nations of Islam, and plus a couple of other groups uh, thrown in. They are not Muslim in the strictest sense of the word. Let's put it this way. There are no more Muslim than Jehovah's Witnesses are Christian. Because some of their fundamental beliefs are in contradiction with Islamic beliefs. And yet they call themselves Muslims, and they have a kind of a Muslim theme about them because they're trying to answer some questions and address some issues. But if you look at those two groups, if you... Maybe, maybe if you stretch the numbers, there might be about 100,000 members of what I would call the black nationalist Islamic groups, put them all together. But you still have about 900,000 African-American Muslims who are mainline. Now, the devastating thing, though, you find here is that about 55%, maybe a little more, of African-Americans who are mainline Muslims got their start in one of the, Afri- in one of the uh, black nationalist-oriented groups. And so let's, let me reconstruct the scenario for you. young man grows up in church. He begins to ask questions. He begins to think some things. He begins to wonder, oh, what about this issue? What about that? What about justice? What about racism? What about these things? And he does not hear these issues and these concerns being addressed in the church. So he begins to look elsewhere, and he hears the words of Louis Farrakhan, who was a very gifted speaker, and he says, that's where I want to be. So at about age 15 or so, 16, he might join the Nation of Islam. Typically, he might stay in the Nation of Islam three to five years, until one day he's out on the corner selling the final call, the newspaper or the group and he recognizes that there aren't any older men out there selling these papers. And he begins to question some things. And, he, and it's, it's, it's exhilarating when you begin to hear answers to your questions and, and, uh, and things that address your issues. But after a while, you begin to realize, well, these answers aren't really answers in the strict sense of the word. A good analogy I would make would be, uh, if, you, if you ever wonder what causes tornadoes, and let's say the meteorological establishment never told you what causes tornadoes. So I'm going to come along, I'm going to be like Louis Farrakhan, I'm going to come along and say, I'll tell you what causes tornadoes. It's trailer parks. Because every time you see where a tornado hits on the newsreels, you see how it devastated a trailer park. And so what you do, is it's an old trick, it's the oldest trick in the book, you, you substitute correlation with cause and effect. And so it does answer the question. What causes trailer parks? I mean, what causes tornadoes? Trailer parks. How do you stop tornadoes? Get rid of trailer parks. It has a certain logic to it, even though it's a dumb answer. You know what causes hurricanes? Oh, I know what causes hurricanes. It's palm trees. Because every time you see where a hurricane hits in the Caribbean, what do you see? Palm trees. If it wasn't for palm trees, you wouldn't have hurricanes. So those are the kind of logic. To, those, that's the kind of logic. And, and to a, a young man, 14, 15 years old, that's an answer. But eventually, three to five years later, he begins to realize that's not the answer. And it's at that point where he or she is very, very, very vulnerable and potentially respons- responsive to the gospel. It's at that point where there's low-hanging fruit. And unfortunately, we don't have uh, enough Christians around to begin to say, okay, here's the answer that you're looking for. And so what happens? They eventually say, I'm looking for answers. I'm looking for deeper things. They go orthodox. And many stay five to 10 years. So that's the general story. And that's the general uh, dynamic that happens. Of course, there are variations in all of this, but that's generally what happens. Now, a quick word about uh, where Muslims are located in this country. Uh, If you look at the map, you will see that uh, there are about 27 uh, major uh, uh, cities in this country or major concentrations of uh, Muslims in certain cities. The one that surprises me the most is um, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Columbia is slightly smaller than Chattanooga. Chattanooga doesn't have a lot of Muslims, but Columbia has a huge number. Very, very influential also. But you'll find them scattered throughout the country. And, you know, you can see the, you, like I said, you can see on the map. Now, so that's a little bit about, that's kind of an overview of Islam uh, in America, where we are and where, where we're going. Now, let me try to give you some explanations as to how Islam uh, got its hold in the African-American community. To understand that, we've got to go back before the 20th century. Now, today, the, in the African-American community, the strongest institution is the church. We all know this. It's the strongest institution. That doesn't mean that it's a majority institution, but it is the strongest institution. But if you go all the way back before the 19th century, you have to look at the the nature of theology, how it emerges. Now, I define theology as the application of God's word by persons in every area of life. Now, most people define theology as the study of God. Well, my definition, which, by the way, comes from uh, Dr. John Frame, um, uh, my definition encompasses a, a broader scope It does include the study of God, but it includes applying God's word to every area of life. Now, the question is, how does theology emerge in a people group? How does theology emerge in a culture? Well, there are two things you need uh, to have a, a theology. First, you have to have a life situation. We all have those. And the next thing you have to have is biblical truth. Now, you may or may not have access to the Bible per se but that doesn't mean that you won't have access to biblical truth. If you look at African American history during the days of slavery uh the slave masters wanted to deny access to the Bible you know uh to the for the slaves they they did not want the slaves to be able to have biblical truth and the reason for that cuz the Bible has these dangerous ideas in it like God has called you to freedom, and that kind of thing. If the sun sets you free, you should be free indeed. So they denied the skill of reading to the slaves. They said, don't ever. It was against the law to teach a slave to read. But a remarkable thing happened. They developed an oral tradition uh, that began to carry a lot of biblical truth. And, uh, and, and you, if you go to a traditional African-American church today, you hear... This oral tradition, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. It, it contains a lot of things that the Bible teaches about grace and all the rest of that. Well, that carried, folks, so you have biblical truth and you have a life situation. Now, when those two things interact with each other, if you look at the diagram, when those two things interact with, with each other, it produces two results. First is what I call praxis. Praxis. It's a nice word. Uh, It's a Greek word, actually. Um, But I'll define praxis simply as this. Putting biblical truth into reality according to our life theme. And another result is a biblical paradigm. What do I mean by that? It is a basic biblical pattern that connects with our life situation so when those two things emerge they produce a theology so there is such a thing as an african-american theology there's such a thing as european theology there's such a thing as whatever theology is always done in context and because you have different approaches to theology in different contexts doesn't mean that these theologies uh, uh, contradict one another they would if they're done right they would have a complementary effect so Yes, there is such a thing as an African-American theology. Now, why are we looking at all this? Because we've got to understand how Islam uh, was able to take root in the African-American community. Now, you had two different situations among African-Americans. You had those who were in the South, before the, the time before the Civil War. And, of course, most African-Americans in the South were what? They were slaves. And, therefore, their whole life was defined by suffering. And so what they developed in the South was a theology of suffering. And if you go back to the oral tradition, you hear plenty of examples of this. You know, I've been buked and I've been scorned and I've been talked about sure as you're born. It's Themes of suffering. The slaves never would have come up with triumphal uh, uh, hymns or anything like that. But it's all about suffering. So they developed a theology of suffering. That was the praxis. But now what paradigm was it? was it in? It was in the Exodus paradigm. The whole idea that they, they, they certainly identified with the children of Israel in Egypt. And therefore you have uh, songs emerge like, Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell O Pharaoh to let my people go. And they were not singing about some Egyptian. They understood who Pharaoh was. And so you had this theology of suffering couched in the exodus paradigm. Martin Luther King, in his last speech in Memphis, uh, clearly illustrated that when he said, I don't know what's going to happen now, but I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I assure you, we as a people will get to the promised land. He had been operating in that theology of suffering. As a matter of fact, that theology of suffering became the 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 what powered the civil rights movement so that was well established but in the north you had a different situation african-americans in the north you know uh in the north is where slavery uh, died as an institution and the problem wasn't suffering in the north it was marginalization and so what happened in the north they developed a theology of empowerment. Now, understand what I'm saying here. When I say a theology of suffering and a theology of empowerment, this theology dealt with all the things concerning salvation. Salvation by grace through faith, not of works, all that stuff. It covered all of that. But it also addressed cultural concerns. So in the South, the concern was suffering. In the North, the concern was empowerment, And this theology of empowerment was couched, that was the praxis, but it was couched in the theme of the exile. It was in the north where they began to say, we are a part of the African diaspora. And they identified with Israel uh, in captivity. And they began to think, what must we do? What role must we play as a part of the African diaspora? Well, they addressed uh, certain uh, cultural uh, concerns. Now, here are the cultural concerns that they began to address. First of all, human dignity. What's the nature of human dignity? It's all about being in the image of God. Another thing they addressed was African identity. Now, this is remarkable. Uh, a lot of my friends who were militants in the '60s thought they were the first ones that came up came up with the idea of identifying with Africa, but it goes way back. It goes way back. The, the oldest existing African-American church in this country under African-American leadership is called the African Baptist Church, started in the 1700s. Well, why did they call it the African Baptist Church? Why did not they call it the Negro Baptist Church? Everybody called us Negroes. Why do they say African, for crying out loud? I'll tell you why they said that. Because they believed that... Uh, if you let other people label you you'll end up letting people define you and so africa became a very important point of identification the very first black denomination was called the african methodist episcopal church the second black denomination was called the african methodist episcopal zion church the first black presbyterian church is located in philadelphia right now the first african presbyterian church On and on and on and on. As a matter of fact, the largest black denomination in the 19th century was the African Union First Colored Methodist Protestant Church in the United States and elsewhere. (laughs) A lot of identification with Africa. The first black parachurch organization was called the Free Africa Society, started in 1787. Well, what's going on? What were they thinking? If you let other people label you, you let them define you. And so what they said was, God did not create us as Negroes. He created us as Africans, and that's what we're going to be. So there was the African identity piece. Now, a lot of people think, well, Afrocentrism, that's a new concept. No, Afrocentrism goes way back. It was originally a Christian concept based in Romans 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So... Afrocentrism was originally a Christian concept. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in the 20th century, many African Americans turned to Islam because they felt that Islam was addressing their need for African identity. Christianity wasn't doing it. Uh, The nation of Islam seemed to be doing it. Well, why wasn't Christianity doing it? Don't we have all this great background? Unfortunately, a lot of us forgot our own history. Let's talk a minute about another uh, one of the cultural core concerns that was addressed by this theology of empowerment in the North, and it was, it concerns the divine significance of the African-American experience. In other words, they were seeking to answer the question, why are we here? Well, if we were immigrants, we wouldn't ask that question. If we were First Nations or Native Americans, we wouldn't ask that question. But here we were in a land not of our own choosing, never volunteered to come, and here we were. And so they began to think, well, as they came to Christ, as they began to ponder what all this means in the, within the sovereignty of God, they said, let's look into the Scriptures to see if anybody else has been in a situation like this. And, of course, they found Joseph in Egypt. Joseph wasn't an immigrant. He was sold there by his brothers. And yet, his presence in Egypt had divine and global significance. Let's look at Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in Babylon. They didn't choose to go to Babylon. Yeah, it's true that they got scholarships to Ubab university of babylon but they didn't choose to be there but they pondered well why should why are we here well if you look at the scripture it's very clear that daniel and his friends their presence in eat in uh, in, uh, in in babylon had divine and global significance as a matter of fact the whole world heard about god because of witness of those three men young men what about esther uh xerxes wasn't the man of her dreams and yet here she is she finds herself in the palace why was she there she didn't really understand it until the ethnic cleansing legislation came up and then she began to realize oh that's why i'm here and of course you know the rest of that story and so As uh, these African-American theologians began to wrestle with us, they said, well, then why are we here? Why are we here? And this is what they came up with. We are here so that we might carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the African diaspora and beyond. You know what they called this? They called this Pan-Africanism. Again, originally a Christian concept. But it was a concept that uh, it, it was a it was a concept that was related to missions, and so the Northern African American church began to get involved in missions on the continent of Africa and elsewhere. As a matter of fact, it was so extensive that it, there was a rare person you can run into who did not have a brother, a sister, an aunt, or an uncle, or some relative, close relative, on the continent of Africa. Well, the divine significance of the African-American experience. And so, so there began a great movement. And, 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 and this is always, these, these three cultural core concerns have been with us for a long time. African, uh, uh, human dignity, African identity, and the divine significance of the African-American experience. Dignity, identity, and significance— had been at the core of the quest of a lot of African-Americans answering, seeking to answer questions. And anybody who, who is able to answer those things or address those, those issues the best and concerns the best will get the attention. Well, unfortunately, by the time we got to the 20th century, we in the church had forgotten about that. There were good reasons why, but we didn't address those things anymore the church in the 19th century addressed them thoroughly and that's why the growth of the african-american church between 1870 and 1910 was one of the most if not the most significant uh, examples of church growth in the history of the church now let's take take a look at some of the theologians of the uh, the 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 antebellum or the the church uh, the african-american church before the civil war First, uh, a man who might surprise you. When we think of someone saying, we want freedom in this country at this time by any means necessary, most of us will think about Malcolm X. But 120 years before Malcolm X said that, a man named Reverend Henry Highland Garnett said that. Now, he was born a slave in Kent County, Maryland. He escaped slavery in uh, around about 1824. He studied theology at the Oneida Institute in Utica, New York, and became a pastor, and he served as president of Avery College in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. Now, his views were expressed very clearly in his address to the National Convention of Colored Citizens in Buffalo, New York in 1843. Now, let me read you his closing remarks. He said, and I quote, In every man's mind the good seeds of liberty are planted, and he who brings his fellow down so low as to make him contented with his condition of slavery commits the highest crime against man and God. now understand this: he was addressing this convention, knowing that people would repeat it and it would get out there and it, it would and, and eventually the slaves would would, would would find out about this and then he goes on to such degradation is sinful in the extreme for you to make voluntary submission. the divine commandment. You are duty bound to reverence and obey. If you do not obey them, you will surely meet with the displeasure of the Almighty. Your condition does not absolve you from your moral obligation. The diabolical injustices by which your liberties have been cloven down neither God nor angels, or just men, uh, uh, command you to suffer for a single moment. Therefore, it is your duty. Notice what he said. It is your duty to use every means, both moral, intellectual, and physical, to promote success. Brethren, arise, strike for your liberties, and, and strike for your lives and liberties. Now is the day and the hour. Let every slave throughout the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. You cannot be more oppressed than you have been. You cannot suffer greater cruelty than you have already. Rather, die free men. Than to live as slaves. Let your motto be. Resistance. 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 No oppressed people has ever. Secured their liberty. Without resistance. Henry Highland Garnett. Born again Presbyterian minister. He said that in 1843. Now what's going on here? Here are the empowerment themes. These. These. These, uh, these theologians were quite, they were, they were incredible. Let me tell you about another one, Reverend Nathaniel Paul. He was pastor of the African Baptist Society in Albany, New York. And he expressed his views in a speech in 1827. This is what he believed. He believed that the regeneration of Africa was dependent upon the biblical worldview, upon true Christianity. African-Americans, he said, had a special duty to participate in this regeneration. And he said also the day would come when the sons and daughters of Africa would go back to the land of their fathers and spread the gospel of Christ. Now, why am I covering all of this? I'm trying to give you an idea as to how Islam gained root in the African-American community. You see, these kind of concerns were very, very, very strong, and the church, there were Christians who were addressing those concerns. That's one of the reasons why the African-American church grew so fast. Well, this movement also caught on, and new leaders emerged, and they included Reverend James Theodore O'Hawley and Reverend Martin Robinson Delaney. And this is what they argued. They said the rape of Africa and the enslavement of African peoples could be ended if a strong black nation could be established somewhere in Africa or the Caribbean. And this strong nation could use its uh, uh, power, its economic and diplomatic power, to begin to uplift Africa and bring progress back to Africa. And the basis of all this, again, was biblical truth. All right. So, uh, and that's why missions were such a key. Now, you've got to understand the nature of missions in the African-American context. They didn't just raise money and send individual missionaries over. They took whole Christian communities and transplanted them over to Africa. And these guys like Henry Highland Garnett and James Theodore Hawley and others, they frequently went to Africa and began to bring shape and leadership to these communities. And, of course, they began to encompass other Africans uh, with it. Now, in 1841, a major effort was made to consolidate all this on a national basis, and the leading spokesman for this was a man named Reverend James W.C. Pennington. And he argued that African Americans had a special obligation to become involved in missions in Africa. And, of course, he was aware that there were some twisted forms of Christianity that were going on, especially among those who were beginning to be colonists. Now, again, you've got to understand that in these days colonialism in sub-saharan africa was kind of laid back it wasn't a big thing you know it it would become a major thing later on but at this time they were kind of laid back but he was anti-colonialistic and he had had he refused to have anything to do with a christianity that supported colonialism now understand to be objective now um there were some good things that did come out of colonialism, but generally speaking, the whole idea of, of the colony sending all of its wealth to the country was, didn't work so well. Of course, our own American history tells us that. But he said the destiny of African Americans was ultimately tied up with the regeneration of Africa. Uh, and there were others, like Augustus Washington. He argued for too long... Uh, you know, Africans have been preyed on by the ruthless hands of others, of Europeans and Americans, uh, and, and he says it is, it is time to put an end to that and to begin to develop new systems and new economies in Africa. He said godly men and women of color must support ministry in Africa, and the elevation, and the elevation of African Americans was intimately connected with the future prosperity of Africa. Lewis Woodson was another one of these theologians. He argued that the majority of the world's populations were dark-skinned people, and African-Americans had a special charge to go to the land, uh, to go and take the word of God to Africa. All of this is Pan-Africanism, and it was a, an incredible movement. Um, Alexander Crummel was another man who was very strong in this. Now, we may not know who Alexander, Reverend Alexander Crummel was, but... Um, he was the first president of the American Negro Academy, and uh, he said this. He said, he said, the need for economic development in Africa was very strong, and uh, Africa's descendants around the world need to develop economic ties with the motherland. Now, now, Again, they were talking about a kind of a Christianity where people would get saved and there would be economic development too. And uh, again, he began to say that it's not only in Africa, but other places where Africans live. We need to be involved, because God is calling us to do this. Now, you may not have heard of Alexander Crummell, but he's famous for his mentor, his mentor, I mean, I'm sorry, for his mentee. His mentee was um, W.E.B. Du Bois. And if you look at some of the ideas that Du Bois had about the talented 10th in terms of leadership, you will discover that he got that from... Uh, Alexander Crummell. You heard me mention earlier the Free Africa Society, which was founded in 1787. Now, this was an example of praxis. Remember I talked about this? Praxis. The whole idea of of putting biblical truth into reality according to our life theme. Now, the Free Africa Society was one of the first black parachurch uh, organizations. And among its goals, they did discipleship and evangelism and all the rest of that. But also what they did, they did, they sought to instill sound economic principles in all of its members. They believed in economic development. And because Philadelphia was a terminus, a major terminus of the Underground Railroad, there were a lot of children who came, who escaped slavery and came to philadelphia and they were destitute and so one of the things they they wanted to do was to provide strong fatherly oversight for fatherless children especially boys and at the time philadelphia was hit by some pretty wicked plagues so they they supported and aided the sick they supported and aided the widows now the free africa society is is significant in that out of that came bethel ame church and out of Bethel AME Church came the AME denomination, African Methodist Episcopal denomination. Okay, so if you go up to history, now why are we looking at this? I've got to keep reminding you. We've got to understand how Islam came to develop such strong roots in the African American community. And I think you're beginning to catch on. It's because it has something to do with these core cultural concerns or cultural core concerns it has a lot to do with that anybody if you get the, if you want to get the attention of any people group address their cultural core concerns well let's skip ahead a little bit we came to a little event called the civil war and you know the outcome of that well what was the result of the civil war emancipation and what effect did emancipation have on the church well for for one the uh First of all, it set up, there was astounding political, social, and economic progress made by uh, the former slaves. And because of that, the need for the theology of suffering was declining. The Exodus paradigm was being realized. We were coming out of Egypt. And therefore, the southern church adopted the northern church's developing theology of empowerment. So up to this point, we had two African-American theologies, theology of suffering and a theology of empowerment. But what happened was that after slavery ended and we began to make all this progress, we began to go with the theology of empowerment. And as a result of that, self help societies modeled on the Free Africa Society sprung up throughout the South. And missions involvement rapidly expanded. And so, the result of all that, by 1870, the church was experiencing explosive growth, not just fast growth, but explosive growth because uh, uh, core cultural concerns were being addressed theologically. Now, let me list just a couple of these historic uh, self help societies that were modeled on the Free Africa Society. You had the Rising Star, the Sisters of Love, another group called Love and Charity, the Builders of the Walls of Jerusalem, notice the uh, exilic themes here, the Brothers and Sisters of Esther, the Brothers and Sisters of Charity, the Brothers and Sisters of Love. And all of them had dozens of chapters all over the place. So things were looking very good by the time we get to the mid-19th century. But here's what turned everything around. Three traumatic events. Three traumatic events changed history. And those three events were the end of the uh, post-Civil Reconstruction, War reconstruction in the South. And when the Reconstruction ended, and it ended with President Hayes, he removed the troops from the South that were enforcing the provisions of the 14th and 15th Amendments. And as a result, uh, white supremacy was reestablished in the South through terrorism, through political disenfranchisement, through racial segregation through the Black Codes, and a new form of slavery which emerged called the sharecropper system. I don't have time to explain how the sharecropper system worked. But suffice it to say that as a result of it, you'd get deeper and deeper and deeper in debt. The second great trauma, there were three great traumas that changed everything. The second great trauma were the effects of the industrial revolution in the North. Uh, the industrialists were not anxious to have a, uh, an African-American workforce because who had all the skills? It was the former slaves. But you got to understand during this time, you're talking 1870s, 80s, 90s, there was massive European immigration to this country, and out of that came white-only labor unions. And not only that, but we had this melting pot concept developed. How do you make everybody American? Well, it depends on where you came from. Some people melted and others of us burned. Okay, it just didn't work. It didn't work for everybody. So the result of all of that was that African Americans were frozen out of the mainstream American life, and frozen out of the skilled labor force. So you have two things. The trauma of the end of the Reconstruction in the South, the, trauma, the traumas associated with the Industrial Revolution in the North. The third thing that, the third trauma that hit was the consolidation of uh, colonial hold over sub-Saharan Africa. Now, how did that happen? First of all, the Industrial Revolution hit, the, hit, hit Europe, too. And, of course, they needed more raw materials. And, of course, the thing that contributed to the access to the raw materials was the development of the ocean-going steamship and the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869. Well, with all of that, then colonial activity in Africa intensified, but the colonial powers began to fight among themselves until uh, Chancellor Otto uh, uh, Bismarck of Germany called a meeting in Berlin, the Conference of Berlin in 1884 and 85. Where the colonial powers divided Africa up among themselves. No Africans were present, but the lines were drawn that cut across tribes and all the rest of that, and that's where uh, the consolidation took place. So, colonial activity then, they stopped fighting among themselves, they got busy with colonial activity, extracting the re- resources, but the problem was you had all these black missionaries in Africa, and they were anti colonial. They were eventually all expelled from the colonies and new ones were denied entry and so you know the missionaries came under persecution well the result of all these three traumas was devastating to the church just devastating to the church first of all this last trauma the decimation of the missions movement in africa caused the african-american church to go into what i call a missions coma it was such a trauma that the church went into amnesia almost and here are the effects here are the effects of those traumas first of all it's summed up in the, the, the development of what i call the theological vacuum the church was caught off guard by these traumas concern for survival became the overwhelming issue the missions consciousness of the church was obliterated the developing theology of empowerment was abandoned. Now, why was that abandoned? Because, you see, if you begin to talk about your dignity and your, your whatever, your worthwhileness and your significance in the Deep South after Jim Crow had taken over, you would be lynched very quickly. And so people stopped talking about that. And so as a result, a theological vacuum developed in terms of empowerment and its related issues. And by 1910, the explosive growth of the church had ended. Now, whenever you have a vacuum, you have attempts to fill the vacuum, attempts to fill the vacuum. Well, the first attempts came in the form of alternative theologies of empowerment. Uh, First, a few black Jewish uh, sects emerged, and basically their reason was the original Jews weren't white, therefore they were black, and since they were God's chosen people, all black people are God's chosen people, you see what they're? They're getting at, they're trying to readdress the issue of significance and dignity. Uh, Marcus Garvey emerged of the United Negro Improvement Association. Of course, he's famous for saying, we need to go back to Africa. Well, that was 100 years after others said it. His movement fell apart. And then you had several black nationalist Islamic sects come about. And they were by far the most successful because they addressed more extensively, even though their their how they addressed it was kind of whacked, they addressed most extensively the issues of dignity, identity, and significance. But it wasn't just alternative theologies of empowerment that that, it, that developed. There were ideologies of empowerment. W. B. Du Bois said, "We need to be uh, we need to have solidarity through education." Well, education was beyond the reach of most of us at the time. Then there was the Harlem Renaissance, which which consisted of uh, uh, expressions against injustice through the creative arts. And that lasted for a good while, about 30, 40 years. And then came black nationalism, which was suggested by Malcolm X, but he was too far ahead of his time. But two years after his death, the black consciousness movement hit the scene. And it began to address the issues of dignity identity, and significance. Well, I'm at the end of my time here, but suffice it to say that uh, what happened in the 20th century, the African-American church was largely absent from addressing the empowerment cultural core concerns. And others came in to address these things and got the attention of many people. And that is how Islam developed a foothold, because it tried to fill a vacuum. And I must say it is not too late for the church to get back into the game because all the attempts to fill the vacuum have failed. And the only people who have the capacity to do it are people who are biblically minded. Think about it.